Welcome to Upswing Poker Level Up, the show that helps you become a more profitable poker player fast. My name is Mike Brady, and I'm back for season two of this show, along with everyone's favorite Scottish poker pro, Gary Blackwood. What's up, guys and girls, and welcome to season two of the Level Up podcast. Really happy to be here. Hopefully you guys enjoy season one, and season two is only going to get better. That's the plan. If you play 1-2, 1-3, or 2-5 live, this episode is for you. The topic on the table is splashy live games. Have you ever been at a table with players that are super loose preflop and sticky postflop? You know the ones. There's a limper to almost every hand. It seems like multiple players see every flop, even when the preflop raise size is huge. Postflop, players show a major willingness to commit a lot of chips with marginal hands. Pairs are rarely folded. Draws are always chased. Games like this are incredibly profitable to play in if you know how to adjust your strategy properly, but they can be very frustrating if you don't. Live players ask us about how to best approach these games all the time, and that's why we're here, making it our topic today. Let's start with preflop. Gary, suppose you sit at a live table and after a few hands or orbits, you realize you're in one of these splashy games. How do you start adjusting your raise sizing before the flop? So when you're in a super splashy game where people aren't aware of your adjustments, you can go slightly bigger with your stronger hands. Very quick tangent here, but live poker is just like online poker. You want to be opening much smaller when you're under the gun or under the gun plus one because you're much more likely to be out of position when opening in these positions. So you want to keep the pot smaller and therefore raise smaller. I know some very good live pros who min raise under the gun and under the gun plus one. So we want to keep doing that, but overall we want to bump up our raise size slightly with our strong hands and keep our average hands the same open size. It's really important that you don't go too big with your monsters. You don't want to de-incentivize the splashy players from three betting. Say you're playing two five and you pick up aces in the hijack and your normal open size would be $15. You want to go something like 20 or 25 here and not 40 or 45 because when you go mega huge, people will three bet less and you cost yourself some EV. One last thing I want to say is if you do want to make that raise size slightly bigger, it's really important you're doing it at the table where nobody will start to exploit you. They won't realize what's happening. It's really important that you're doing this with players that aren't going to adjust to that slightly larger open size with your stronger hands. Yeah, for sure. I think even if there's one or two good players in the game, who might notice such a thing, you should probably stay away from it. Now, that said, if they've already folded, you can kind of act like they don't exist. Like, for example, suppose there's two good players in the game, but they fold under the gun and under the gun one, and then you're next with aces. You can still make it bigger. It doesn't really matter if they notice because they're not in the hand, and you'll just only do it when they're not in the hand. And then, you know, suppose they're in the blinds and you're opening, then you probably wouldn't go bigger because you don't want to start putting off those patterns where they can start to pick up on the fact that you raise bigger with aces. Now, as Gary suggested, you can really get away with this strategy in a lot of live games. Most people at live tables are not going to notice that you even changed your raise size, let alone notice the hands that you're changing your raise size with. So it's one of those really cool exploitative adjustments that you can get away with where you literally just play a bigger pot when you have good hands. So one follow-up question on that, Gary. Do you not change your raise size with like the less strong hands in your range so like you know jack 10 suited eight seven suited ace five suited are you just keeping your raise size the same as it usually is in these games yeah i'll keep my raise size consistent with the the medium strength hands like the jack tens the ace fives the ace nines all those types of hands and i'll make it ever so slightly bigger with you know the the queens kings aces ace king ace queen suited those types of hands 
Yeah, so it really is like a pointed adjustment just to try to pump up that pot when you have the good hands. Definitely makes sense. And if you can get away with that, it does add a lot of EV to your strategy. Do you make any hand selection changes in conjunction with your sizing difference? For example, do you raise less often with speculative hands like low-suited connectors when the table's very splashy? So I think the best piece of advice that we'll give out today is the following. When you're in a really loose, really splashy game, you actually want to tighten up a little bit with your opening and your defending ranges. And when you're in a really tight, really nitty game, you want to open wider. I used to make the opposite mistake when I was a younger man and play super loose in super splashy games. And my God, is that the wrong way to go about things? You don't want to be a super net. You don't want to be playing super tight, but you tighten up your opening ranges and you don't defend too wide multi-way from the big blind. Think about it like this. If you're in a loose, splashy game full of fun players going six ways to the flop, etc., why would you ever open seven, six suited under the gun? That's not the type of hand that thrives going six or seven ways to the flop. So you want to tighten up your opening ranges from earlier position. On the flip side, when you're in later position and it's folded round to you, you can open as wide as you normally would. You can even open a little wider if there is a very special type of player in the big blind. You get to slightly widen your opening range. But overall, you want to be really quite ABC with your opening ranges and kind of tighten them up a little bit from an earlier position because you don't want to be opening hands that are going to not play very well five or six ways to the flop. Yeah, for sure. And another thing about suited connectors specifically, and maybe even some low pocket pairs from some position, those hands kind of thrive when they're able to steal the blinds, right? Like that's a pretty good result. When you raise seven, six suited in an online game, everyone folds, you pick up a blind and a half. That's actually a quite good result for that hand, you know? Like you're upset if that happens and you have aces or ace king or whatever, but seven, six suited, like that's a good steal the blinds hand. In these splashy live games, do you ever steal the blinds? No, not, not really. You know you're going to be going post-flop. If you know you're going to be going post-flop, if you know you're not going to steal the blinds, you obviously have to open the speculative hands less often because you're going to be facing a lot of resistance, even in the form of calls. And then, like you said, they actually don't play as good multiway as you might think. I mean, if you're in the big blind and it goes raise five calls, yeah, you can call. It, it plays well enough to call in that situation. But you're going to be overflushed a lot when you make a flush when it goes five, six, seven ways. You're going to be overstrated sometimes. Say you have seven, six, and it comes eight, nine, ten. There's five, six players that could have queen-jack offsuit, and they probably all play queen-jack offsuit at a 100% frequency. So there's actually starts to be a decent chance that you run into a cooler scenario when, you know, you're, you're playing against that many players. There's one other thing I wanted to touch on real quick that you talked about where you used to kind of play it the opposite way you should, where you would actually play looser in the splashy games. I think that's really common. You know, you see how other people are playing in your games, and their play can get kind of infectious. You know, if you're at a very, very loose table, everyone's opening to like 6x, 7x, or whatever. It can be really easy to think, oh, that's what I should be doing too. That's what we are doing as like a table. But that doesn't make it right. You know, like you still want to think about your plays and make the right decision. You don't just want to look at what everyone else is doing and kind of mirror them, especially when they're kind of loose, splashy players that, that don't really know what they're doing, you know. So try to not fall into that trap of kind of mirroring the table and just being like, oh, I'm at a splashy table. I got to get in there and splash around too. You know, you're going to get in there, but at the right times. You know, you don't, you don't need to force it. There's no point in doing that. You're just going to cost yourself EV. Yeah, absolutely. One of the main leaks that I had in these, you know, 2018 Los Angeles, super splashy, super fun games, it's really the multiway side of things. And I suppose we should, you know, sort of uh, explain that a little better. When you're multiway, say you go five ways to the flop, there's only 100% equity that can be shared amongst all the players in the pot. If there's five players, then you're going to have less equity than you normally would as opposed to if you're heads up. So what I used to do is I put way too loose multi-way and, you know, your range therefore has a lot less equity. You're super dominated, as we spoke about. There are instances where you can actually play wider. Say, for example, a very, very big fun player opens in the cutoff. 
Full Trench in the Big Blind, you can defend super wide in that instance because you're heads up versus the guy you want to be heads up versus. But say, for example, it goes like, open this very fun, fun player calls, call, 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 and you're on the button with like seven, five suited. I would be right in there making the call and trying to see a flop, you know, six ways. That's the kind of thing that you want to stay away from. When you're multi-way, you've got to play much tighter, regardless of, you know, if there's one fun player in there, you can't justify a super wide call preflop. But on the flip side, if, you know, Full Trench in the cutoff and this guy's in the big blind, you can open super wide in that instance. So it's really the multi-way side of things that you want to kind of shy away from and be really sure that you are playing disciplined. It's so easy to just flick in a call from the big blind. Say it goes like open four calls, you're in the big blind with seven, five offsuit. And it's like, well, I'm getting a really good price here. And all honestly, that's a big leap to be calling on like seven, five offsuit there. for example. Yeah, I would think for seven, five offsuit to be a call there, it would have to be like bad player opened, bad player called bad player called, bad player called. Like, that would kind of be the only way to justify it, right? And that reminds me of something we could kind of touch on before we move on. You know, we we call this episode Splashy Live Games, and we're kind of characterizing this very diverse set of possible games into one category, Splashy Games. But every single game is different. Every formation at the table is different. It matters where the worst players are sitting. It matters how exactly they are bad players. Are they bad aggressive? Are they bad passive? All that stuff really matters. It also matters where you're sitting and who's already folded, all that stuff that Gary just touched on. So don't just think, oh, I'm in a splashy game, so I have to fold the 7-6 suited in the cutoff, you know, folded to me. That's not the case, because if you look around and you see, oh, there's a really, really bad player in the big blind, I want to play hands with him, you would absolutely still open that 7-6 suited. You might actually even widen your opening ranges compared to your usual strategy. So the key takeaway there is don't just characterize your game as a splashy live game and then just follow all this advice blindly. Really think about the specifics of every hand, of every table, and try to come up with the best counter strategy, keeping in mind that it's a game that is ripe for counter strategies. Your opponents are not going to do anything about your exploitative adjustments. So think, how can I most these people up and then do it? So now I want to move on to another topic that's kind of a fun one. If you think you're at a table where you can get away with limping, in other words, people are not going to exploit you if you implement a limping strategy, how would you approach doing so? So this isn't something I'd recommend often, but I guess if you're at the right type of game, and as Mike says, there's hundreds of different types of poker games with different dynamics and table layouts, etc. But if you're at a game with super loose, super passive players who can't fold post-flop, you can start limping from early position with some hands that can win huge pots post-flop. Hands like deuces, threes, fours, ace-deuce suited, that really narrow range that can either flop a set or you know flush over flush someone. Again, this isn't really a strategy I'd recommend, but you can for sure have some limps in these really nice, loose, passive games. One thing I absolutely would recommend is having an over-limping range, so when somebody has limped and it full drenched you, you can over-limp with certain hands, and again, it's a really narrow type of range that wants to do that. Low pocket pairs, ace deuce, ace three suited, those types of hands. We do not want to overlip hands like seven five suited, jack ten off suit. And a quick disclaimer for everyone watching we never want to overlip our aces or our kings. Those hands always want to raise because we want the pot to be as big as possible with our strongest hands, and raising them is by far the best option. Yeah, for sure. Just a couple quick kind of addendums there. You know, every game is kind of different. So Gary's specifically talking about no anti-cash games there with a table rake. So they're taking some money out of the pot post-flop. Now there are some variations, right? If you're playing in a game with antis, for example, or a big blind ante, 
you can overlimp or limp wider than Gary just said. For example, if there was a bad player in the cutoff who limped and I was on the button with 7-5 suited in a game with antis, I'm for sure playing that hand. I might actually raise it, but we'll put that to the side. Because you get to play looser when there's antis, right? Another situation that makes you play looser is if there's a timed rake. If you're playing at a great club like The Lodge, for example, in Austin, Texas, they take an hourly seat fee, so they're not taking any money out of the pot. That means you are able to play a little bit looser because there's no money that's going to be taken out of the pot. It doesn't reduce your pot odds. So if you're playing in most cash games, what Gary said applies exactly. But if you're playing in one with Time Drake or you're playing in one with an ante or maybe there's some other weird structure that's going on, just think about it and see, you know, can I get away with it a little looser or should I be as tight as Gary just said with those limping strategies? And remember, make sure you're in a game that you can get away with it. Don't just start limping just because it's a live game. Make sure you're in one of these games where it's actually worth limping. We don't want to just send people off into their 1-3 games and limp deuces under the gun every time. Probably not the way to go. Let's talk about playing versus a raise. You'll often be facing much bigger raise sizes in these games, and pots are more likely to go multi-way, two things we've discussed at length already. Given those assumptions, how are you adjusting your strategy when facing a raise? First things first, if we've got a very big fun player raising, even to the larger sizes, it's really important that we are aggressive and isolate these guys with three bets with the right types of hands. Flatting hands like queen-jack suited or ace-queen offsuit or pocket tens might be appealable or feel safe versus a larger raise size, but we must continue to three bet and isolate these players, particularly when we are in position. Three bet pots in position are very profitable. Three bet pots in position versus aggressive, loose, spewy fun players are unbelievably profitable. Remember, even if these guys are using larger raise sizes, they are the players that we have identified as loose and splashy, so their ranges are going to be pretty wide. They don't just have a monster because they've raised to you know, $40 at 2.5. We have identified these players as loose, splashy, spewy. Therefore, our hands like pocket tens, ace-jack suited, ace-queen offsuit, king-queen offsuit, etc. We must be continuing to three-bet these hands versus these types of players. In terms of flatting, again, it's really important that we're not flatting with hands that are dominated or do poorly multi-way. So let's not call an under-the-gun open in MP with 6-5 suited or king-jack offsuit when we have five or six guys behind who hate to fold pre-flop. We can mix in some hands like king-queen offsuit, ace-nine suited, these types of hands that are maybe a tiny bit looser than our normal strategy, but do really well versus multiple loose players who are in there with their queen-jack offsuit, their 6-5 suited, their 10-4 suited, all those types of hands that they love to play that we are now good enough to fold. Yeah, good stuff there. All really important. you got to set yourself up for success with your preflop strategy in these games. And I'm just going to hammer it home one more time. Think about the specifics of your game, what you can get away with, what the ranges of the other players you estimate to be. Then formulate your counter strategy based on kind of some of the tenants that we're coming up with today. All right, I think it's post-flop strategy time. We obviously can't cover every post-flop scenario without making this a five-plus hour podcast. So let's start by narrowing the scope. What are the most common and critical post-flop adjustments in splashy live games? So I've got four specific adjustments that I want to talk about. One, we want to disregard balance, bet big with your strong hands and medium size with your marginal slash weaker hands. Two, bluff smarter, i.e. don't just bluff relentlessly versus guys that hate to fold. Use your blockers, and we've spoken about unblockers in previous podcasts, and use those as your bluffs. Number three, check raise with your nutted hands. Be aggressive, particularly when you're out of position. Fast play and bloat the pot as best as possible. And number four, let's bet extremely thinly for value. Block bets everywhere on the river. Betting second pair, third pair, even fourth pair. Really important that we're betting thinly and often for value. 
Yeah, for sure. And key thing there, when you're betting third and fourth and second pair and stuff, you're, you're often going to be block betting using a smaller size. Listen to uh, some of our previous episodes if you want to learn more about that. So let's kind of go through those each real quick to spend a little time kind of covering and, and fleshing them out a little bit. So the first one you said, disregard balance, bet big with your strong hands and medium sized with your marginal and weaker hands. So that's kind of building off this concept of inelastic ranges. In other words, a player will call with the same range versus a big bet than they will versus a small bet. When that's the case, which is often the case for, for kind of weaker live players in these splashy games, you can get away with just betting big with your strong hands and betting smaller with your weaker hands and your, some of your bluffs, your draws, stuff like that, because they're going to play the same range regardless, and you kind of just get to bet what your hand wants to bet. So when you have that good hand, you bet bigger, build the pot, get them to call more. When you have one of those bluffs, maybe a, a straight draw or something, whatever you're betting with, maybe a middle pair that just wants protection, you can go smaller because they're probably just going to play the same versus that bet than they would versus the big bet. Do you have anything else to add for that one, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. There's one specific example that I, I want to give, and this is derived from a previous podcast that we've done, uh, the Turn Barreling podcast. And say, for example, you open the button, very loose, very splashy player who hates to fold calls in the big blind, and you've got king nine. Flop comes down, king eight deuce, you bet the flop, they call, turn is a seven. As we mentioned in the previous podcast, you're supposed to check your king nine there at a reasonable frequency, and it is to balance your range because your range is so wide. Why would you ever check out that king nine there versus a guy who's not going to fold pocket sixes, for example? So that is what I mean by, you know, disregard balance. You kind of want to throw GTO out the window and play to maximize your profit versus these very select player types. Say, for example, the solver bets one third on the turn here. Doesn't matter if you've got middle set and the guy's never going to fold a pair. You want to sort of forget about that and sort of, you know, put that to one side and play to make as much money as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Once again, it's just looking at your opponent, realizing what they're doing and, you know, formulating the best possible counter strategy, you know, you do let solver stuff and all that influence what you're thinking, but you largely put it to the side, right? All right, so your next one was bluff smarter. In other words, don't just bluff relentlessly versus guys that hate to fold. Use your blockers to bluff. Keep your bluffs smart. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like maybe go over some examples or, or however you, you prefer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we've just mentioned, you know, these guys that hate to fold, you don't want to be bluffing relentlessly. We've seen some wonderful examples in the previous podcast that we did where you know we bluff with air in a lot of instances that's not going to be the most profitable option versus a lot of these players who are just calling you down with second third fourth fourth pair you want to be bluffing as mike says earlier with your high equity draws with your combo draws your straight draws your flush draws your, your straight draw with the two over cards as opposed to the straight draws with the two under cards so you can't just be bluffing relentlessly you want to be choosing hands that have a lot of equity because obviously if somebody's calling you down a lot you know, if you're betting the flop and the turn, you want to have the ability to improve as opposed to, you know, just having queen high on a king high board, for example. Yeah, so I guess another way to kind of put this bluff smarter thing is probably bluff less. Like, you're probably just going to be bluffing less more often than not in these games, you know, because people do just like to call down. So you're often going to look at a hand and be like, eh, this gut shot, not quite enough equity versus the guy who's pretty much always going to call me. This blocker driven bluff, doesn't have enough going on against this guy who's always going to call me and also has this weird wide preflop range that has a bunch of hands that aren't normally in my opponent's ranges and thus my blockers are a little bit less relevant. So yeah, largely you're just going to be bluffing less often. That doesn't mean you're never going to bluff though. Remember, the tip is bluff smarter. So just be smart about it. Think about how much equity does my hand have and, and is it really worth the bluff versus this opponent or these opponents? 
Yeah, and there's one more thing I want to touch upon here. And, uh, you know, as Mike says, you know, you don't want to never bluff. I know some players that adopt that strategy when it comes to live poker. And I think that's a big mistake because there are going to be a lot of really profitable spots where you can bluff on, on rivers. And that's where your blockers come in. You know, if you hold the ace of hearts, and there's three hearts on the board, etc. There are a lot of spots where it's pretty mandatory for you to bluff. So you want to bluff smarter as opposed to never bluffing or bluffing relentlessly. It's always going to be somewhere in the middle, and the key is, you know, to find that sweet spot where you want to be bluffing correctly with good blockers and not just, you know, blasting off or never blasting. It's kind of somewhere in between. Yeah, for sure. Those those kind of never are always pieces of advice that the people dole out are are usually not so good. Although I do have one later that that I think is pretty true. So another, the next one you said there, number three, was check raise with your knotted hands when out of position versus several players, and you kind of expanded that to be fast play a lot, build the pot, don't slow play your strong hands. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. People aren't folding that often. People are inelastic to bet sizes. So you should bet with your good hands. You should raise with your good hands. You, you want to build the pot. You don't want to let them do the betting for you. There might be some scenarios where you look at the guy and you just know he's going to barrel the turn. Sure, you can slow play the flop and, and wait to check raise the turn or whatever. But that's very specific. You know, Most of the time, you just want to be fast playing your hands. I don't even think I have to kick it back over to Gary for that one. That one is just so simple. Fast play your hands. Win, win, <laughs> fast player hands win bigger pots do you have anything to add though there gary there's one or two more things i want to add there i think mike has obviously nailed a lot of it and um, you know say under the gun limps and you've overlimped pocket fours because level up podcast has suggested that you do so three other guys limp and you the plot comes down jack four deuce you never want to be check calling there you you know the pot is really small say you're playing one two there's like twelve dollars in there you never want to check call with a hand like Jack Fortuce there. You want to be check raising always. So when the pot is really small, you want to bloat it as quickly as possible. And you might think, well, I might lose my customer here. The EV of your customer sticking around and you bloating the pot is far higher than the EV of you check calling in the hope that this guy is just going to like bluff the turn, for example. So when the pot is really small and or you're out of position, you want to bloat it as quickly as possible with your nutted hands. On the flip side, there are some instances where you don't want to, you know, fast play super aggressively. Say, for example, you open the cutoff, the small one's three bet, you've called with like pocket sevens and the flop comes down like king seven deuce. It's a three bet pot, so the pot's already a little bit bigger and you're in position. So you get to kind of dictate the pace of play. So if your opponent C bets the flop, you don't have to always raise there. You know, you get to essentially always call there because one, it's a three bet pot. It's already kind of big. Two, you're in position, so it's not like, you know, the turn's going to go check-check without your say-so. That's one of the scenarios where it's okay to kind of slow play and allow your opponent to bluff into you. I think even in that spot, that king 7-2, pocket 7s versus 3-bet, you'd probably even slow play that out of position a lot of the time, right? Like, suppose the player who 3-bet you was in position, they C-bet on king 7-deuce. Unless they're, like, really splashy or something, I think you should generally be slow playing that one, or, like, pretty often, right? You can kind of do both, but I mean, again, as we mentioned multiple times, you you want to go with your reads. If this player is super loose and super aggressive, absolutely, you want to slow play. But some of the time, you want to be raising there with your pocket sevens. So if you know the guy is going to just like blast off a ten high, absolutely, you want to you know just call. If the guy's the kind of guy that's going to check back king queen on the river or on the turn or something like that, you want to be raising. So go with your reads in that instance. And your fourth thing that you, you said was most important, let's bet thinly for value. So you kind of mentioned block betting. So you're kind of going to be betting thin for value with block bet sizes, small sizes, with your kind of second, third, fourth pair type hands. And then with your good hands, your top pairs and stuff like that, you're going to be betting thin for value and maybe big, you know, on the river with some weak top pair, you might go for a river bet for value that you normally wouldn't go for. And it's because the guy is just more likely to call with whatever peanut butter and jelly sandwich he reached the river with, right? 
Yeah, so there's a good chance that if you're watching this podcast right now, you're not value betting thinly enough, even if you think that you are. You know, in certain nodes, as we call them in Silverland, if the flop and turn go check, check, you get to bet really wide for value on the river with third pair, fourth pair, etc. If your opponent bets a flop and you call and then the turn goes check, check, you still get to bet really wide. And this last part that we're talking about kind of ties in nicely with the first part in terms of disregard balance. So if you're playing a really solid theory-based strategy, you almost never use a small bet size in position, i.e. one-third pot. But when you're playing in these loose, splashy games, there are some scenarios where you want to use a small size with like a you know a, a second pair or a top pair. You get to bet them for your big size as well because you know this guy's never folding. So it's really important that we're betting really thinly for value. We're using basically whatever size we think can get called with our second pairs, our third pairs, etc. And we're kind of just disregarding balance and going for the absolute maximum that we think we can get in certain spots with a very, very wide value range. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so that was a lot of great post-flop stuff. Now I want to continue talking about post-flop, but I want to really hone the discussion in on multi-way, and that's what we're going to wrap up this episode with. I think it's crucial that we cover this topic, at least relatively well, in this episode. One of the most important, you know, sort of subtopics in the splashy live games arena. So Gary and I kind of had just jotted down some general thoughts about multi-way, because as I mentioned in a previous podcast, they're kind of amorphous, hard to nail down. There aren't a lot of like solver solutions for multi-way strategy, so it's kind of hard to have proof of things. So oftentimes it ends up being kind of an intuition, experience-based discussion. That's largely what this is going to be. So we both have a few notes. Gary, do you want to start start off with your first one? Yeah, so the first thing I want to talk about is that you can't bet as often multi-way as you normally would heads up because there are a lot of players in the pot and therefore you have less equity. I gave the example earlier about only 100% equity being able to be split between all the players in the involved in the pot. So when you're multi-way, your range has less equity and therefore your betting frequencies go down. As well as that, your hand strength decreases drastically. So when you have 10-9 on 10-4-deuce, that's a relatively strong hand. But five or six ways, that's nowhere near as strong as you might think. And therefore, you can't bet as relentlessly as you would when your head's up. Yeah, and that brings me to one of my notes. And this is kind of a rule of thumb that I have. And I know a lot of people have this same rule. And this is kind of in all live games I have this rule for the most part, but especially like lower stakes, splashy games. Just don't bluff the flop multi-way out of position, even with solid draws. Just don't really do it. You know, you flop an open ender five ways. Just check. Let's kind of let it develop, see what happens. Now, combo draws, stuff like that, probably an exception. You, you know, you have 9-8 of spades on 10-7, deuce, two spades. Betting's going to be good, of course. Jack-8 of spades, whatever. But generally speaking, just check the flop. Don't bluff. Even Don't semi-bluff. Just check. Start with a check. See what happens, because it's just going to go better for you. They're not going to fold enough to make those bluffs really get through. Uh, most of the time, you're just always going to get called or raised in one or two spots. And it's just it just works out better if you just start with a check and go from there. Good stuff. So the next thing I want to talk about is if you've made the preflop changes that we have suggested, your top pairs will dominate your opponent's top pairs. So be aggressive with those hands. There are obviously going to be some exceptions, as mentioned, you know, 10, 4, deuce. We have 10, 9, 4, or 5 ways. But a lot of the time, if we've got, you know, king, queen, and the flop comes down king high, we're going to really dominate our opponents. And remember, this is loose, splashy poker we're talking about, where people are in there with king, nine, offsuit. They're not folding, you know, king, four, suited, all those types of hands. So when we have top pair with a really good kicker, particularly on disconnected boards, we want to be in there, we want to be aggressive, we want to be building the pot as quickly as possible. Yeah, and once again, you've kind of set me up for one of my notes, I hope this keeps happening. It's crucial (laughs) to remember certain things when you're up against wide ranges. There's a few things that I kind of have noted down here. They'll have more total whiffs on the flop. 
So, you know, when someone is calling with stuff like Jack-4 suited, 10-5 off, whatever they're in there with, we've all seen people that are just wild pre-flop. They're going to miss more flops. They're going to just totally whiff more often. The other side of that, though, is that they're going to smash boards that you kind of don't expect. So, for example, normally when you raise, a couple people call whatever, and it comes Jack-4-deuce, you could generally say no one has two pair in their range because no one plays Jack-4, no one plays Jack-2, no one plays 4-2. That's not how they're supposed to play, right? That's not how most people play. But in these splashy live games, people are getting in there with Jack-4 suited, Jack-2 suited, 4-2 suited. Who knows? Some guys Jack-4 offsuit, you know? Some girls, for sure, Jack-4 offsuit. So you're going to run into more random two pairs. You kind of have to keep that in mind, right? They'll also have more random flush combos. Say the board comes, you know, king. Let's use Gary's example with the king-queen. King, eight, deuce, and you have king-queen, right? two spades on the flop, and let's say the turn is like the seven of spades. There's a lot more flushes in your opponent's range than normal. Normally, your opponent's going to have ace-high flush draws. They're going to have, you know, maybe like the queen-ten suited, queen-jack suited, queen-nine suited, stuff like that, like good suited hands. But if they're in there with jack-four suited, you know, five-three suited, they have so many more combos of flushes, so you kind of have to watch out for that and just keep that in mind when you're like facing a lot of aggression on the river and the flush is completed. They have a bunch of random flushes that you normally wouldn't expect. So their range is sort of like more dense with flushes. So that's kind of another weird thing that comes up because of these wide ranges. They'll also have more potential bluffing hands on certain runouts because of all the weird trash in their range. So let's use that same king eight, two, two spades. But this time the flush doesn't complete on the turn. The turn's like an offsuit seven. You bet again, you get called. River's like, uh, maybe it pairs the board. Doesn't matter. Let's just say it's a brick that doesn't complete the flush. So now they have a bunch of missed flush draws that they normally shouldn't have. They'll have 5-3 suited that missed. They'll have Jack-4 suited that missed. Jack-5 suited that missed. All these flush draw combos. So in some cases, they're going to have more strong hands than usual. In some cases, they're going to have more bluffs than usual because of their wide preflop range sort of selection. And then as Gary said, you get to really go for some thin value because when they just have the king-4, you're going to get three streets with your king-queen. Normally something that would just not really ever happen. It's tough to get, you know, three streets when you go five ways to the flop with king-queen on a king-high board. But when a bunch of guys can have a weak king in their range, it kind of works out that you are going to get three streets sometimes, at least two streets or so. All right, so I think that's enough on that subtopic. I know Gary and I both have one more note. So Gary, what is your last sort of note for multi-way play? It's something that you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, don't bluff with no equity. And I cannot stress the importance to this. If you are you know, five ways to the flop and it's queen, six, deuce, you don't want to bet 10-9. You don't want to bet 10-8. You know, you, you want to have solid equity. Even a hand like 5-4 is going to be ambitious to bet four or five ways to the flop. You know, as Mike said earlier, if you're out of position versus five guys, you can just check all your draws. Um, you can check raise some of the, you know, the really good ones if you really want to. But you want to be really quite passive multi-way, particularly when you have air. You just don't want to be in there blasting with, you know, your, your complete air. You want to be very selective when you're multi-way and you're, you know, you're selecting your quote-unquote bluffs. You want to have combo draws and you know, nut flush draws, etc. Um, so it's really important we're not in there just blowing the pot with absolutely nothing. Particularly in these loose, splashy games where people don't like to fold. Why would you ever be in there betting nine high into five guys on a queen or a king high board? And it's just not going to work out. I've tried it. It doesn't work, Gary. They don't fold. <laughs> and they just, win, they just win the pot and I lose and it sucks. <laughs> All right. I got one more note before we wrap this whole thing up. You can overcall wider than usual post-flop because your opponent's ranges are wider than usual. For example, you normally got to be pretty tight when it's a multi-way pot post-flop and it goes bet, 
call and now the action's on you because, you know, one guy has showed a willingness to bet and then another guy has showed a willingness to call. So you kind of got to be tight in theory. But when one guy will stab with a bunch of random hands and another guy will call with a huge variety of marginal hands, you get to loosen up. So I'll just come up with kind of an example on the fly. I don't think it'll be perfect, but suppose you have like a suited ace on the button that you called preflop with. Flop comes ace high. Say it's like ace, jack, eight, and it goes like bet, call, call. That's normally a spot where I think you're mostly just pitching it in like a real game if people are trying. Then again, if, if people are trying, you're probably not taking a four-way, four or five-way flop, but let's just put that to the side. You'd normally not be looking so good with your, with your you know, ace or the weak kicker in that situation. But when people are so wide, you do kind of just get to flick in the call, see a turn, kind of see what develops because they're just so much wider than they normally would be. So just, you know, not, not a lot, but when, it, when you're facing an overcall scenario where it goes bet, call to you, you do get to just play a little looser, maybe even a lot looser than usual, just because you're up against those really, really wide ranges. It's really what drives a lot of this post-flop strategy in these splashy live games is you're just up against such wide ranges. And it changes so many spots in different ways. So you kind of just got to critically think, how does the fact that this guy's super wide and how wide exactly is he? How does that impact my strategy here? How should I adjust? That's really what this all comes down to. And it's a little bit of an art. It's, it's not much of a science yet. You know, the, the solver technology for multi-way pots. I know there's stuff out there, but it's arduous to use. Not a lot of content sort of about it. So a lot of people are very unfamiliar with multi-way pot stuff. So you kind of just got to critically think. Use your brain, do your best. That's what a lot of us are doing. So don't worry too much about it if you don't have the exact right answer. Just get in there, do your best. Yeah, I, I think just you've absolutely nailed it once again. But you know that example you gave—if you're in a game where people are trying and people are playing well, you know it goes open call call. You call ace three suit on the button. It comes down ace jack eight, and it goes like bet call call. Your ace three suit is not going to be ahead often enough. But in this game where everyone's super loose and super splashy. People are going to have eight, six suited. They're going to have jack nine off suited, Sarah. So, you know, if you're in that scenario one where people are playing really well, you can make a strong, solid, disciplined fold there and fold your top pair four ways to the flop in a really tough game. But as Mike said, in this really loose, splashy game where they've got all kinds of third pairs and all the gut shots in the land and, you know, all the second pairs and, you know, probably even calling like pocket sixes to see if they can turn a set, etc. You know, those are the spots where you get to overcall super wide. Uh, so yeah, I, I completely agree with Mike there. You know, you want to be mindful of the fact that everything changes so drastically when people are in there with super tight ranges and also when they're in with super wide ranges as we've been discussing all day today. Yeah, good stuff. All right, well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a little ad at the end of this one. It's the first episode of season two. I'm going to give you guys a break. The Upswing Lab is great though. But the one thing I am going to ask you to do, if you're enjoying the podcast, please engage with it somehow. If you're listening on the audio platforms, a five-star review would be wonderful. Sharing it with your friends or sharing it on social media, that would be super helpful for us. If you're on YouTube, feel free to leave a comment, ask us a question, we'll probably answer. Hit that like button, subscribe. And if you're on the audio platforms as well, please follow, subscribe, whatever the button says. It's different on every platform, so it's hard for me to keep up. But yeah, we'd really appreciate it. It'll help us keep this podcast going. We really appreciate you being here with us. Take care.